All right, I have a favor to ask of you as uh, I stand up here, because I don't want to stare up here the whole time. If this should happen to start coming down on top of me, somebody give me a heads up or yell duck or do something that I would have an idea. I always love this one uh, Sunday a year when I get to preach with our VBS decorations. It makes quite a backdrop. I'm not sure if I'm the Rubik's Cube. I really have no idea what's happening, but it's a whole lot of fun. As a matter of fact, it's so much fun that I decided to change what I was preaching on this morning, and I'll explain that uh, to you. We have VBS going on, begins tomorrow, will last a week, and I want to take this opportunity to welcome our friends. Let me see if I have this right. Georgia College and State University? Okay. And do I hear a few Gamecocks out there? Ah, there we go. And no rivalry between you all whatsoever, right? Do you ever play each other in football or anything? No football team? That disrupts the whole thing when I start, when I start to do that. Okay, but VBS and what we do as a ministry and what you all do as a ministry has the same vision, the same goal, and the same foundation, if you would. The vision we have, Jesus said it real simple when he was meeting after he was resurrected just prior to his ascension, and he gathered his disciples around him, and they said, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. The vision we have as a church is the same as the vision you have. So what we want to begin to do with our covenant children and the children who come in here from the community is the same thing you want to do and you want to be equipped to do this summer in your summer leadership project is to learn how to be a disciple, a follower, a learner of Jesus, and then to have that overflow in your life so that you can go and make disciples of Jesus. And in a nutshell, that means spiritual formation. What does it mean to be formed as a disciple of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be formed into the image of Jesus Christ? And in a word, it means love. How we grow, how we grow into the fullness of what we were meant to be as human beings is we are to grow in love. So, we're going to look at a different passage of, the, of Scripture this morning. Two weeks from now, we will begin our series on the Psalms. That's what we'll be studying for the summer. But what I want us to do this week is turn in your Bibles, and it'll also point out, and I'm going to pray real quick first, but we're going to look at a passage that talks about the foundation of love, and the foundation of love is discipleship. And that's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Before I do so, let's pray. We ask, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that you would open our minds and our hearts, fill us with the truth of your word, your word that's inerrant and inspired and infallible. And as your word describes itself, it says the word of God is living and active. And when we think about what that means, that means you act upon us. You're active upon us personally and really through your scriptures. So this is not a dead word. This is a living word. We are coming into contact with the living God speaking to us, acting upon us, through his word this morning. So this is much more than just a teaching time. This is a time where we are being met by the living God, 
who has revealed himself and acts upon us in his word. So, Lord, may we be paying attention. I have no idea what you want to do in our hearts individually or corporately this morning. But I do trust your word does not return empty or void. It accomplishes what you purpose. So act upon us in and through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now turning our hearts and our attentions to God's living and active word. Let's begin at verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3 that says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family and in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Here's the thesis of the sermon this morning. Here's the thesis behind Vacation Bible School. Here's the thesis I want to propose to you for your summer leadership project. Learn love. Learn love. Look with me at what it says here in verse 21, verses 20 and 21. When Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, I can remember what for so long I thought that verse meant. I had an easy time knowing exactly what that passage meant. God's powerful. He can do everything. And he can do abundantly more than I think or imagine. So I go, I think or imagine the Yankees can win five World Series in a row. Abundantly more than I ask or think is 90 World Series in a row, right? Or I think... I should get this or that, or I should be able to overcome this or that, or this is my desire, this is what I want, all that. And God can do abundantly more. What a tremendous promise, right? Isn't that awesome? Until I realize that is not in the slightest what that verse means. Because in context, what is Paul talking about in this passage that he begins, begins with a prayer? For this reason, I bow my knees, I fall down, and I'm appearing before the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the maker of all things. I submit to him. I'm in awe of his authority. I bow my knees before him, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And then from there, the entire prayer is about us being so weak that we can't handle his love. Look at what he prays. First, he prays according to the riches of his glory. Now, think about that. How rich do you think is the glory of God? Is that a small thing? God only has a little bit of glory? Just somewhat? Maybe if he works harder or something, he'll get more glory somehow? According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Which, what does that mean? That means we're weak. He's praying that we would have strength, which means we don't have strength for something. We're too weak for something. 
What are we too weak for? We're too weak for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. And for Christ to dwell in our hearts, think about any blessing we have in salvation, being forgiven, being justified, being adopted as sons, any blessing, it comes through being united to Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, we don't know how to handle that. You don't know how to handle being united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. You need to be strengthened. Then he says, you being rooted and grounded in love would have strength to comprehend. There he is again, praying, saying, you're weak. May you have strength to comprehend what is the length and the breadth and the height and the depth and to know this love that surpasses knowledge itself. Maybe we don't understand love. What do you think? Maybe we need to make it our thesis to learn love. Maybe we need to know that our chief battle in life is learning love. How important is love? Think about some other things in the scriptures. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. First four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God. And then talks about creation, how he created everything out of nothing through his word. But how does the scripture reveal God? Reveals God as a trinity, three persons in one God, all in equal, equal power, substance, and glory, but in three persons. And 1 John chapter 4 says, God, this three-personed God, is love. Father, Son, and Spirit is love. Then, Jesus says in John chapter 15 that we are to abide in his love, and his love is to abide in us. And then one of my favorite verses, and you don't hear me preach on this too often, Jude. How often do we go to Jude? doesn't even have more than one chapter. I can't even go Jude chapter or anything. Jude verse 21 is a command. I want to know how often we read this as imperative. The command is... Keep yourself in the love of God. Do you think Jude would be commanding that if it wasn't hard to do? If everything didn't mitigate and work against the love of God and believing and embracing and being melted by and being gripped by and being compelled by and being governed by love. Been listening to a pastor lately, so I'm kind of on a kick of listening to this particular pastor. His name's Greg Thompson. He used to pastor Trinity Presbyterian Church, a PCA church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And he writes this. He's talking about how we need a theological account of discipleship that says the goal of formation is love, to love God and to love our neighbors. And he says the goal is love and the essential movement of love is downward. And here's how he puts it. He says, what is it that we believe? What is our confession? He says, we believe in divine communion, a God of love who dwells together for all eternity in a divine communion of love. We believe in a creation of love, that this world is given in an overflow of love, given to his creatures, and that our job is to receive his love, to participate in his love, and to extend his love to the world. We believe in sin, which is the corruption of love. We understand that we've sinned, that we have chosen lesser loves and have thus been exiled from our beloved. We believe in redemption, which is the pursuit of love and the coming of love, 
that God would pursue us himself and return us to himself and that he has done that in Jesus Christ. In the incarnation of Jesus, love pursued us. In the ministry of Jesus, love served us. In the crucifixion of Jesus, love bore our suffering. In the resurrection of Jesus, love secured our life. In the ascension of Jesus, love governs us now in wisdom. In the Pentecost of Jesus, with the sending of the Spirit, love equips us for the work ahead. And in the return of Jesus, love will win. Love will triumph. In the return of Jesus, God will make all things new into a city of love. We believe in love. Paul begins here with the words for this reason, and he's doing this, he's picking up where he started, where he left off in chapter one of this chapter when he was about to pray for his readers. And I love how Paul, I can't wait to meet Paul someday. Because Paul says, for this reason I pray. And then he kind of goes off, it's almost like he sees a butterfly. And he goes off on this great rabbit trail. And this rabbit trail, he spends 13 verses talking about the mystery of the gospel. And he says, the mystery of the gospel is the fact that Jews and Gentiles, people who despise one another, can't stomach each other, will become one in Christ. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise. In a word, the household of God, the new family of God, governed by love. Learn love. And in this passage, we learn two things about love. We learn, first of all, our identity in love, that we're named by the Father. And then second of all, we learned we're defined, we're grounded. The text says rooted and grounded in love, which means we're defined by love. We're identified in love, and we are named or defined in love. Identified and defined. First of all, our identity. The fact that we're named by the Father. One of the best books I've ever read on theology is J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Absolute classic book on theology. And he talks about this one God, this one God is our Father. And probably the classic chapter in this great book on theology is his chapter on adoption. And listen to how J.I. Packer talks about the doctrine of adoption. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. And in the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. And then he begins to do what I call some uncomfortable diagnosing. He's going to run a diagnostic test on our spiritual condition. So if you don't want to have a diagnostic test, this is the time to tune out the rest of the quote. If you're still with me, pay attention. Packer writes, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. You hear what Packer is claiming there, what he is saying there? He's saying if you are not controlled, compelled, if your worship, 
if your outlook on life, if your worldview, if how you treat others, if how you think of yourself, how you think of God, how you relate, your approach to life is not compelled and controlled by the fact that God is your holy Father, Packer's saying you don't understand the gospel very well. Apparently, learning love is not the meat of the Bible, or it's not the milk of the Bible. It's the meat. It's a, we want to go from milk to meat all the time, and we tend to think that is, well, let me learn some eschatology or something like that. Or maybe we need to learn love. See, let me try to make this practical. Think about some of the applications of having your whole outlook of life governed and compelled by the fact that God is your Father. Just take one example, your self-image. Your self-image will govern what you project to others, how you feel about yourself. Now, when I say that, I'm not promoting the popular culture, psychological view, promoting self-image as just feeling good about yourself. It's not what I'm talking about here, so let's make that straight. But for most of us, our self-image, to at least some degree or another, is controlled by our performance. If we view ourselves as successful, looking good, feeling good, project, we project a confident and positive image to the world. But if I feel mostly shame and weakness, a lack of dignity, we promote a negative, needy image of ourselves to the world. And in this quote by Packer, his proposition concerning the biblical doctrine of adoption. And remember the text in Ephesians says, he's bow Paul is bowing his knees before God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We get our name from God the Father. We get our identity as being God's child. So if the reality that we're children of God does not control our entire outlook of life, our basic foundation, our core, our identity, we don't have a very good understanding of Christianity or the gospel. Now, what is conveyed in this idea that our identity comes from being a child of God, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named? I think some of the main ideas conveyed in this truth, this reality, are the ideas of compassion and safety. God's overarching care of us, from which are included ideas of his protection, his guidance, his nourishing of us, his nurturing of us, his leading us, even his discipline of us. Doesn't mean he lets us do whatever we want. Even his correction, his training of us comes out of and is evidence of his compassion, his care, his commitment to us, and our safety. Hebrews chapter 12 says the discipline of God is an assurance and an evidence that you're a child of God. In other words, you want to be disciplined by God. It is proof, it is a demonstration that God is viscerally in love with you. He is caring about you as a child. See, you can't play off one truth against another. When God confronts and disciplines, he's doing so in a way that's saying he is ultimately co committed to your flourishing as a human being, being all that he made you to be as a human being. In fact, I came across this quote a number of years ago and just pulled it out this week. Roger Nicole, who was a very influential Reformed theologian in the 20th century, used to say that a heresy is a truth in isolation. 
that a partial gospel is no gospel at all. In other words, you need the whole truth. You need the fullness of truth. Compassion and safety. Think about this. The word for compassion that is used often is a word that expresses very deep emotion. It's the deep emotion and commitment of God for us. Probably one of the best examples of this in the Old Testament comes from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49, and the context of this is, again, the people of God, they're in exile. They're detached. They're asking the question. As a matter of fact, verse 14 says, Zion, meaning the people of God are saying, has God abandoned us? Has he forsaken us? Where is he? We're going through dark times. We're in exile from our chief love. And verse 15 of Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you. Isaiah is prophesying, speaking of the people of God. I want you to picture this. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. We are engraved on the palm of of God's hands. Your walls are continually before me. This is an incredibly visceral feeling, overwhelming love that God has the audacity to identify this word, which has to do with the biologically rooted, overwhelming love that a mother has for her infant. And he's taking that upon himself. You are absolutely safe in the fatherhood of God that he has adopted you through Christ. It's not an automatic. Not everybody is a child of God, but through Christ. That's your identity. Do you embrace that? Does that compel you? Are you learning love? Next, are you defined by love? Verse 16, Paul prays that you, so here he's praying for the church, for the Ephesians, and for us, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, here he goes again, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So this is a corporate thing. He's saying, church, Spruce Creek, drop in the bucket. PCA, drop in the bucket. We're all, but all of us together would have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Can you see why? To for God to have the power to do what is immeasurably more than we ask or imagine would be for us to grow up in this love? I guarantee you, us growing up into maturity, into the fullness of God, and reflecting this kind of life of love is immeasurably more than any pleasurable circumstance God can give you. If he can mature you and grow you into a person of mature love, That's doing more than anything any of us could ask or imagine. One of the issues we have, though, is with defining love, really understanding what love is, because we think of love and we think of it as only, see, we hear love, and some of you might be doing this. You might be hearing, oh, wishy-washy, warmth, tenderness, only that. That's not how the Bible defines love. That's one aspect of it. Let me illustrate it this way. My church knows this. For those of you who don't know me well, my favorite novel, my favorite book outside the Bible is Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. So if you're stuck with me for the summer, you're probably stuck with some Lord of the Rings quotes, okay? 
So you can put the over-under for the summer on what they are. Here's the first one, okay? And one of them, the Fellowship of the Ring, is entering the ancient realm of the elves called Loria. And one of the company, Boromir, and here's one of the men. Remember, you've got hobbits, you've got dwarves, you've got elves, and you have men. Boromir is one of the humans, one of the men. And he's apprehensive about entering this unknown, unpredictable land. He's having a conversation with his fellow human, Aragorn. And he says, O Aragorn, of that perilous land we have heard in Gondor, and it is said that few come out who once go in, and that, f- that few have, none have escaped unscathed. Aragorn replies, O Boromir, say not unscathed, but if you say unchanged, then maybe you will speak the truth. See, here's the thing with love, an encounter with love. Being confronted with the love of God will never leave you unchanged. It will transform you because the love of God is a power. It is a force. And it will not, and maybe that's why we have an ambivalent love-hate relationship with love. We'd rather hold on to things that are safer because I think we may know and we may intuitively know in our gut if we're confronted with love, we can't stay the same. Tim Keller has a way of saying, he has a thesis, he says, if you look at most action movies, the players and characters, he says, even though it's fun, he says, go watch them, go out and see them, but he says, know this, that the players and characters are all one-dimensional. They're cartoon characters. They're simple, they're not complex, they're one-dimensional. And as a result, there's no real engagement with them. And then he says, now today in a culture, it's very vogue to say you believe in God. But the God that most people believe in is a God of their own choosing. A one-dimensional God made in their image, a cartoon God. Could be a benevolent grandfather, a higher power, a spiritual universal force, an unmoved mover. They pick an image of God and say, that's my God. But when you do that, the result is no personal engagement, no personal transformation. Remember Nicole's quote, a heresy is a truth in isolation. One dimension of the truth is not the whole truth. And when we talk about the God of the Bible and we say God is love, the God of the Bible is complex. He's father. He's friend. He's lover. He's judge. He's king. He's holiness. He's mercy. He's goodness. He's truth. He's justice. He's beauty. That is not a one-dimensional cartoon character, God. Which is why Paul says we are too weak to handle the living God. What kind of love is this? This is a love that triumphs. This is a love that triumphs over what? It's a love that triumphs over sin. A love that triumphs over evil. A love that triumphs over injustice. And it's a love that's powerful and is only most fully revealed and fully disclosed on the cross. Because it's on the cross that God defeated evil and the evil that runs through you and I without defeating us. On the cross, he defeated the evil in us without destroying us so that he could make us into the sons and daughters, the human beings that we were built and designed and created to be. 
discipleship, formation, is knowing that kind of love. I pray that the children who are coming in here this week will encounter, they're coming from all sorts of backgrounds. Our culture is so confusing. I pray that they see and are confronted with this kind of love. My friends from South Carolina and Georgia College, I pray that you learn this kind of love, that you are rooted and grounded in love, that you know this kind of love, and this is the foundation that can lead you to love God and love others, to be formed after the image of God. Notice what, how the text ends when he says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that which indicates purpose, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what a mature disciple is. When Jesus gave the commission, go and make disciples of all nations, he had a picture of the fullness of him extending to all the earth. And the fullness of him, which is the fullness of this complexity of love, filling the earth, extending to the ends of the earth, which is why He said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be equipped to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The fullness of God filling everything. That's what maturity, that's what discipleship, that's what growth looks like. That's what the adventure of discipleship looks like. And it is adventure. I wish I could say it just went like this. Wouldn't that be nice? I could use a little smoothness in my life like this. You know what it looks like, though? The internet won't capture this. It's more like this. (laughs) It's kind of all over. Which is why we're rooted and grounded in love. The love that is demonstrated and revealed most powerfully in the cross. Know your identity. You are named, your identity as a child of God, and be defined by love. And part of being defined by love, recognize your love-hate relationship with love. Recognize there's a battle in your soul. You don't want the love of God to confront you and challenge you. You say you do, you think you do. No, we don't. We don't want the love of God because that challenges us. And that is the battle of life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the fullness and the wholeness of the implications of the gospel. There's a reason Paul said the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of your love. It is a full love. It is a huge love. It is a big love that encompasses all things. Teach us us maybe to have a little bit of humility and assume we don't understand it all. Teach us to have some humility and understand, Father, that we are tiny, we are small, but we are secure and we are safe in your love. Teach us to see that that is the chief battle we face is believing that we're loved. Father, fill us to the, so that, yes, and this would be more than we could ask or imagine, that you would actually fill us, that we would be the fullness of God. Imagine that. Help us to be your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.
We've now heard the word of God. We have the opportunity to respond to the word of God in several different ways that we respond. The first is in our pastoral prayer. We respond by going to our Father, bowing our own knees, expressing our hearts, praying for one another, praying for our ministries. So let's go and bow before the Father and pray. Abba, Father, we come before you boldly and yet submissively. We humbly ask that you would fill us, fill our minds with the fullness of who you are. We pray, Father, that part of our love would be praying for one another. So, Lord, I think of Vacation Bible School this week. We've commissioned the servants of yours that will be working. We pray for the children. We pray for Sherry and the staff. We pray, Father, for spiritual and physical protection. We pray, Father, that for our own walk with you, that we would not do anything in our own power, but we would be empowered by you, that we would obey your word that is given to us in Jude to keep ourselves in the love of God. And we pray, Father, that there would be kids who, for the first time, might surrender their lives in faith to Jesus Christ, that that, Father, in the power of the Spirit, you'd bring them from death to life. Raise them up. Create and grow mighty warriors for your grace, mighty warriors for you. So, Lord, we ask urgently and expectantly for that. Lord, I pray for our friends from Campus Outreach and their summer leadership project, and I pray, Father, for all that you're teaching them. I pray for their growth into the fullness of God. I pray that they would not have a small vision for themselves. Pray that you would teach them to cultivate and learn your love, to not water it down. I pray, Father, for the leaders. I pray, Father, that for their jobs that they have this summer, I ask, Father, for their time on the beach evangelizing. I pray, Father, for their training, that they would exude your presence, your power, your pleasure, being a sweet aroma for Christ. Father, as Rick and I travel to General Assembly this week, we pray for our denomination. We pray for how you empower her. We pray, Father, for the deliberations that we do. We pray for our travels, that you would give us safety. We pray for our worship and the speakers and the preachers. We pray for our fellowship and the gospel. Pray that we as a church would be one, Father, as you and the Spirit and Jesus are one that we would not dismiss unity in the church, that we would grow in becoming a beautiful church with a beautiful orthodoxy. We would not only be true, but we would be good. We would not only be good, we would be just. That we would reflect your majesty and your glory. We pray for those who are hurting. We lift up Margaret Johnson to you and continue to pray for her, for Doris Toth, for Mary Cavalli. We ask that you would be with them. And any who are struggling, any out here and we don't eat, may, may not even know all of their needs. But Father, we pray for the hurting. We not only rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. And Father, we pray for the ministries and the missions. We pray for what you are doing in our midst, that your presence would be alive and well here in us and through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.